Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Tech Sideline is presented by First Bank and Trust Company. They offer free checking with industry-leading mobile banking. Who you choose to bank with can make all the difference. Visit firstbank.com to learn more. We're just over a week away from Virginia Tech football season opener against Old Dominion on Saturday, September 2nd. And with that comes some news. Grant Wells is the Hokies' starting quarterback. We'll get into that and more on episode 306 of the Tech Sideline Podcast, which starts right now. We're recording this on Thursday, August 24th from Tech Sidelines High Tech Studios in the Virginia Tech Corporate Research Center. If you are watching on YouTube, please make sure to like and subscribe to our channel and please share the podcast with a friend. As always, Tech Sideline is presented by First Bank and Trust Company, who you choose to bank with can make all the difference. Bank with First Bank and Trust Company. I'm going to briefly toss this over to Will Stewart, who I was going to introduce in a second. He has more on that specific ad read. Oh, that camera? Okay, good. Um, So First Bank and Trust Company has uh, launched a new checking account product, which is geared towards students. So if you're a student listening to this, or if you're a parent who has a student, check this out. They've got a checking account. It's called Checking with Perks. And it comes with roadside assistance, cell phone protection, so if you damage or or lose your phone, fuel savings, and discounts on food, making it a great fit for college students. Uh, Normally, that checking account is $5 a month for all those perks and privileges. But now through November 1st, they're waiving the $5 monthly service charge, so you can try it out for free. Visit firstbank.com and look look for checking with perks. Sounds good. This Smooth. episode is also brought to you by The Hokey <laughs> the Way. Hokey way. Uh, the Hokey Way's Countdown to Kickoff Matching Donations campaign is currently underway. This fund drive is critically important to Virginia Tech NIL. The first $250,000 in donations will be matched. Visit thehokeyway.org to learn more and to donate. I'm David Cunningham, Tech Sidelines Managing Editor and your host for today's episode. Will Stewart, Tech Sidelines Founder and General Manager. He's in Chris Coleman's red shirt chair today. Chris is uh, currently in Ireland and will be at the Notre Dame Navy game on Saturday, which is exciting for him. That's in Dublin. Uh, across the way is Andy Bitter, Tech Sideline senior staff writer. And Jack Brizendine, our fantastic sports media analytics student, is behind the scenes producing the show. So Tech gave us the news on, on Wednesday. Uh, and Brent Price said the news was going to come. Grant Wells is the program's starting quarterback. 
The redshirt senior from Charleston, West Virginia, won the job over Baylor transfer Kyron Drones. He started all 11 games for Hokies last season, throwing for 2,100 yards and nine touchdowns, along with nine interceptions. Andy, it seemed like it might have been trending that way for the majority of camp. We saw Wells and Drones go at each other in the spring. What was your reaction to the news? Yeah, I think we all kind of anticipated this was the direction it was going to go when they announced you uh, 2 could hear the announcement for $10, I think, is what you had to pay uh, <laughs> to get the announcement of the starting quarterback for this team. Uh, this is something that we all kind of seen coming for a while, I think. You know, when we talked to Pry afterwards, he made it sound like it was closer than a lot of us thought in terms of Wells sort of had the lead early in camp. There was a surge there by Kyron for a couple of days where it seemed like he might be the guy. And then it goes back to Wells and he kind of ran away with it here, uh, I guess in the last week or so. So uh, not a surprise, uh, you know, they, they said, or, you know, this was prize words after spring balls that right now grants our top guy, but Kyron will play. And it's the same situation now. This is what they basically said yesterday. Wells is the starter. Kyron drones will play in some capacity. We'll, we'll play every week was what Pry said. Those were his words. So uh, it's an interesting situation. You know, not a lot of coaches have pulled off this two-quarterback thing. I know they're not calling that two-quarterback system, but they are trying to play two quarterbacks at the same time. And, you know, the history of college football is littered with very bad <laughs> situations where that has gone awry. Uh, and and I, I feel like it's maybe this offensive staff trying to do something a little too complicated when they need to, to walk before they can run with this, this new setup they have. Speaking of that, Will, <laughs> I want to ask you about times Virginia Tech has tried to use two quarterbacks before in the past, whether it be Marcus Vick and Brian Randall or Sean Glennon and Tyrod Taylor. Um, I think everyone would argue that the Hennon Hooker Braxton Burmeister experiment was not handled very, very well, which resulted in Hendon Hooker walking. Well, throw what, COVID into the mix with that too. Yes. <laughs> it's just a co- complete well, bad, bad situation from start to finish. What what do you remember about those specific instances in, with with Vic and Randall and and Tyrod and Glennon, and in your perspective, looking at this one, what do you maybe expect? So let's take them in order. Let's start with uh, Vic and Randall. Um, sorry, Frank, but I think that was handled horribly. Um, I, I, Andy might remember the details better than I do, but you weren't covering Tech back then, right? Partially. I, I covered games here and there. I covered that, what was that, Hurricane game, Texas A&M. Yeah. So they, they, I was in and out of games around that time. I covered that Miami game where they ended Miami streak, right. uh, which I also believe was 2003. 2003. So, yeah. So, so the, 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 when you, when you talk about Vic and Randall in, in 2003, the, the one that comes to mind is when they played Boston college and I don't remember the details, but tech came out and they were smoking on offense with Brian Randall starting the game. Then they just did what they wanted to for a quarter. And then they brought in Vic and the air went out of the offense. And Boston College was able to come back and eventually win the game. Now, Tech had some defensive problems. There, there's more to it than just the quarterback rotation. But I remember that as, as being an example of, it was almost like, and again, I don't remember the details, but it was almost like Frank thought to himself, well, Randall's going to do the first two series and then Vic and then Randall for two and then Vic without any you know kind of feel for how the game was going. That's what I remember about that. Like it was scripted. Yes. And I remember um, they uh, I, I remember in general, I think the Tyrod Taylor, Sean Glennon stuff was handled well. I don't think that that 
hurt the offense. And, and I'm painting with a very broad brush over the course of two seasons. So what's the next one? Uh, Burmeister and Hooker? Yeah, well, yeah. well, you know, people get mad when we say this is a whole separate podcast in and of itself. And they're like, well, then talk about it. And I just, you just can't argue that that one just didn't go well. Um, in retrospect, uh, I don't have any insider knowledge or anything, but in retrospect, it was just kind of obvious that Hooker should have been the guy. And Burmeister wound up becoming a wide receiver at San Diego State. And, you know, once you see how those two things played out, it should have been <laughs> Hooker. There shouldn't have been a competition. Um, There's a whole other layer to yeah. that whole thing with COVID and Hendon had his health scare earlier in the year. He and Fuente had a rift about, yes. you know, players opting out and who was on what side of that whole thing. And I don't think they ever recovered from that. And that was obvious by the end of the season where Hendon had his cold spell against Clemson, however we want to describe that. And I think it was just over at that point. I mean, those two were at the breaking point, and that was just it between <laughs> it was, trust. It was time to Between trust, up. between coach and quarterback. And that, that was a two-way street, so... Uh, you know, there, there were complicating elements besides just playing time uh, in that 2021 or 2020 season. It, it is kind of unfair to, to look at how things ended up and, and draw judgments. And, and let me let me draw a parallel. There's there's a theory out there that Virginia Tech had a chance at SEC membership long about 2011 or so when the SEC wound up adding Missouri, Texas A&M and Missouri. There's the old thing, well, it should have been Texas A&M and Virginia Tech. And in retrospect, it seems patently obvious, uh, you know, opinions differ on whether or not that was actually a thing going on behind the scenes. Let's say it was. Let's say the SEC called Virginia Tech up and said, uh, hey, what do you think? And Virginia Tech said no. Well, it's 2023, and it's pretty obvious that the, the money's become this huge difference. But I, I said something about this on the message boards or at, at some point – and Bill Roth texted me, and he or he called me, and he said, "You got to put things in historical perspective. Long about 2010 or 2011, the ACC's payout was either comparable or ahead of all other conferences. Now you could kind of see that train at the end of the tunnel with the SEC launching a network, but um, the, the tech officials had always wanted to be in the ACC. They were, and the money at that point in time is good." Yep. So don't be unfair passing judgment, you know, 12 years later on what might have been a thing at that point in time. Uh, so I get your point there. Um, what I what I personally don't want the drones thing to be is um, what it wound up being with Quincy Patterson. Every time Quincy came in, you knew what they were going to run. It looked the same every time. And sure, there were exceptions like the long uh, run against UNC and but in the past to Hazelton. Yes. To, to so send it to another overtime. There were bright, shining moments where Quincy did things other than run straight into the line. But for the most part, he ran straight in the line for a two to four yard gain. Yeah. And, and if, if he's truly going to play. So I did listen to the live stream and I went and looked at my quotes later and I'm like, did Pryor really say drones is going to play each and every game? And he did. He said that I don't want it to be hey, let's snap it to him and have him pause and run straight up the middle. So it'll be interesting to see I, how this coaching staff handles it. I think in their defense, they've said that he's going to have the whole playbook. Okay. Or they intend for him to yes. have the whole playbook. Now we'll see. And, you know, Pry said it the other day, um, you know, there is a running ability 
that a six foot three, two hundred and thirty-five pound quarterback has that's a real attribute that he has not really been able to show. They've not been live. They weren't live in the spring. They haven't been live in August. And you know, he has that part of his game that maybe doesn't show up until you put him in the game. Yeah. Now that's not to say they're gonna run him on every play. I think he's capable of throwing it. I've seen him in the RPO. He seems to run that pretty well in the little limited portions of practice that we've seen. So I, I think this is more than you have a 250-pound quarterback or however much Quincy Patterson weighed <laughs> and, and just run straight into the line. That was your power rushing game because, you know, I, I think at the time McLeese was the running back, not not a very big running back. Yeah, it's not right. like you, well, that was the same you time give when they him used Dalton back. Keen to right, run the exactly. ball. Right, the exactly. They were searching for somebody to be yeah. that power running back guy. I don't think that's the same situation now. I just think it's it's such an incredibly tough thing. I mean, you, you talk about Bryant Randall, Marcus Vick. Uh, you know, that situation resolved itself with Vick's antics where he got suspended for the year, and then Brian Randall is the ACC player of the year. Yeah. So it shows you how difficult that is. I mean, you had a uh, future ACC player of the year that's sort of hamstrung because you're going back and forth. You know, of course, he developed in his career, and he got better by the end, but it's just it is such a tough thing to pull off, the, the two-quarterback thing. I mean, you know, Clemson did a little bit last year, you know, swapping back and forth between those guys, and I, th- I think that really hindered uh, their team and what they were able to accomplish. So uh, again, there's just, there's so many things that they need to do offensively first that I just don't know if you need to heap on trying to, to juggle this two quarterback thing at the same time. Yeah. The, the only thing I can add to that is there's a, I'm, I'm watching a world war two documentary on Netflix and there's the old war quote about no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, so that's, they have ideas of what they want to do, but when that game is actually in progress, <laughs> You know, the, the defense is doing, doing things you didn't expect. The sphincter tightens up a little bit, and you're like, uh, should we really have Kyron throw it? Let's just run him into the line, that kind of thing. I think there's a more modern version of that quote from Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we've yeah. heard this kind guy. of thing a lot. Yeah. So, Pride says both quarterbacks are going to play. He he was very adamant about that yesterday. He said, quote, Grant's the starter. Grant gets the majority of the work, but people are going to have to prepare for Kyron. And a U.S. Pry and offense coordinator and quarterbacks coach Tyler Bowen yesterday about it. How do they handle the delicate dance of trying to use two quarterbacks? What do you expect we will see? I don't know. I don't know if, if this is just lip service because this is what you have to do in this day and age to keep everybody happy. I mean, you know, you know, if drones is not the starter, he could up and transfer. He could, I mean, that that's just the reality of the situation right now. So I don't know if, if this is a sort of a, a juggling act that they have to do to try to keep everybody in the fold, keep them satisfied with their role and, you know, kind of keep that carrot out in front of them so that they can continue to, to practice and feel like they're part of this thing. So they don't have to go elsewhere to find playing time. That's really what you see a lot at the quarterback position. Or if it's like, we really do think these two guys are, are that close and that they can both come in and run this offense and be effective. Uh, you know, I think drones is slightly different from Wells from a skill set perspective. So that would be something else that an opposing defense has to prepare for. I don't know if, I mean, you have to show it for them to have to prepare for it every week. If you don't show it, they're not going to take it seriously. So, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. I mean, I guess this is a card that the Hokies have to play still, how they're going to handle this whole thing. But uh, I just the history of trying to get two quarterbacks in the game is just messy. And I, I'm curious how they're going to do it. If you're Old Dominion, which quarterback do you feel like is more difficult to prepare for? Well, Dominion's prepared for Grant Wells like five times in his career, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he has played Old Dominion or, or been on a team that played Old Dominion a bunch. So it's not like he's 
some mystery uh, to that defense. So I, I guess you'd have to say drones just in terms of, of newness. Cause there's no film on him. You haven't played him before, but uh, you know, I guess we'd probably have to ask some defensive coordinators about that. Who's, who's more difficult to prepare for. Um, before we move on, I just want to touch on a few injury notes that we got from yesterday's practice. Price said tight end Nick Gallo suffered an injury. The Hokies are still trying to determine its severity. We'll talk more about the tight ends in a little bit. Um, defensive tackle Gunnar Givens and running back Jeremiah Coney had minor surgeries that will keep him out the first couple of weeks, according to Pry. Just wanted to touch on that. You you look puzzled. What do you... I'm just wondering what minor surgery um, heals itself in a, in a few weeks. I'm just curious, you know, whether it's soft tissue or bone or something yeah, like that. I don't know. Yeah. They didn't specify. I, don't I feel like fun. Dorian had a minor surgery, like the way they phrased that last year, that <laughs> yeah, ended up well, keeping him out the entire season. So yeah. I don't know. It's not the well, news you want to get on the eve of the season that these guys are going to be out for sure for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, the Gallo thing, maybe a little bit more distressing kind of based on what we've heard in terms of uh, severity of that. And, and the fact that it's still open-ended, they don't know how severe it is. It's like, well, it's definitely not playing at Old Dominion if it's still up in the air, how severe it is right now. So that's a, a veteran guy there and then gets really young behind them. But yeah. um, you just don't want to see injuries this time of year. You're so close to getting through the off season and get into the part that actually counts the season that you don't want to get guys banged up going into that portion. Well, while we're on tight ends, let's, let's talk about tight ends. Um, the young tight ends in the room might have to step up now with, with Gallo out being injured. Tyler Bowen says he feels really good about the trio of Daquan Wright, Benji Gosnell, and Harrison St. Germain. But that's a lot of youth. How do you, Andy, how do you feel just about that experience? We saw Daquan Wright a lot last year, but Harrison St. Germain didn't really play a whole lot, and Benji Gosnell is coming off two injuries. Yeah, not exactly a picture of health, that group. I mean, Daquan's had his issues here, had a strain this camp that's kept him out. Benji Gosnell coming off an ACL uh, last year and one in high school. Um, and it's, we're talking about three second-year players, only one of which got any playing time last year, plus a freshman that just arrived in Zeke Wimbush. That is a young, young group. Uh, you know, that I think, you know, I see Gisnell out there, and I see him moving around. I think if he can stay healthy, he could be a real player. I think he's got some some really good ability. I think he slipped through the cracks recruiting-wise because of the injury. Uh, you know, Tech obviously had his brother come in here. Uh, around the same time so I think that was beneficial in his recruitment I think they can be good it's just it's such an unproven group uh, I don't really know what they're like as blockers we haven't seen them in a lot of action uh, you know I don't know if Gallo was an exceptional blocker but he was a veteran he's been around in a lot of this stuff and I think he's proved he can play in that spot so uh, you go from having a veteran guy who's been through a lot of battles to all of a sudden a lot of youth a lot of inexperience uh, you know, Daquan was basically a slot receiver last year. Didn't play a whole lot uh, in, you know, up on the line in terms of a sort of a traditional tight end role. So it just opens up a lot more question marks in a spot that, you know, they didn't think they were going to have those question marks coming in. Yeah, that becomes my question is what do you lose with uh, Gallo not being able to play? And it sounds like you might lose at the very least some experience blocking on the line. You're right. You know, according to what you say, Wright was really more of a receiver last year as opposed to a blocking tight end. So how does that change, you know, what's available in the playbook? And it's it's not really what's available in the playbook, but what do they feel comfortable calling when they need to pick up, you know, certain number of yards. Maybe that takes some plays out of the playbook that, that they would run if Gallo were playing. 
Yeah, I think the good news is we saw Wright being used as a pass catcher last year. I mean, he's very big, and I think in some ways he's a he's a big matchup problem. I think he's, um, and I'm sure if Chris was here, Chris would probably say it. He's he can be a very big receiving option. I, I but I think it all comes down to the blocking and the schematics there. Um, like Andy said, Gallo was a veteran. Um, I think part of it, you, there's less of a need for him to step into that slot receiver role because they added so many receivers. Well, so I think we're gonna, deeper at those receiver spots uh, that you know maybe you don't have to put your six foot four guy out there in the yeah. slot as a match. I mean, it's nice to have that matchup problem, but at times you would just like a slot receiver out there instead. Well, we're going to talk about that right now. Uh, Price said yesterday that the top four wideouts in the program are Ollie Jennings, Daquan Felton, Jalen Lane, and Stephen Gosnell. Considering where the Hokies were a year ago, that's a pretty good top four. Yeah, well, I, it's telling me, you know, you, we haven't gotten to the second team yet, but he listed another four guys, and Daywan Lofton was not among that group. Yeah. Daywan Lofton was their second leading wide receiver last year. It was Caleb Smith, a large gap, and then Gallo and Daywan Lofton were the next two. Now it sounds like they won't have Gallo, at least uh, for the ODU opener, and Daywan Lofton is, is pretty far down the depth chart. I uh, didn't have a chance to ask him pry about that uh, yesterday, but it really tells you how they've reshaped that wide receiver room, just how many more options they've brought in. Now you get to that second group of guys. They listed the, the next four to yeah. Kai Heath's in there. Xavion Turner, Bradshaw, redshirt freshman, sophomore Tucker Holloway, true freshman to Kai Heath and Aiden green. Yeah. It's pretty inexperienced. <laughs> and Holloway played what? Like four games, very, Not, li- very limited snaps. The as a only one that had any snaps last year was Holloway. Yeah, and that was mostly as a punt returner, and he, he got most of his action at the end of the year. I think at the Liberty game was probably yeah. his biggest work as a wide receiver. So a lot of youth there, but I, I think there is some promise. Uh, I've been pretty high on Aiden Green and how he's performed at practice. Every time we're out of practice. He had a really good catch yesterday. Yeah, he seems to do something every time we're out there in practice. We're not out there very long. I mean, it's not like he's got 90 minutes to show us something. It's usually in like a 15-minute span. We're like, oh, Aiden Green made another play. Uh, so I, I think he's going to be one that's going to be tough to keep off the field as, as a true freshman. So one of the things Chris has talked about, and, and I think this is worth paying attention to, is uh, certainly as a group, the wide receivers are more talented. But they, you know, Chris wrote, wrote when he did his wide receiver preview, preview for us probably a couple of weeks back, one of the things he talked about, and I think he's talked about on the podcast, was drop rate, that the drop rate is – is kind of high career-wise with Jennings. Unfortunately, he didn't drop that one against Virginia Tech last year when he was playing for Old Dominion. You know, Tech could have used him uh, dropping one there. Um, and you guys just talked about Lofton. Lofton's had a pretty high drop rate as well. So there is no question that there's more talent there, I think. But can they cut down on the drops and be more reliable? Andy, out of that top four, Jennings, Felton, Lane, Gosnell, like that seems like a pretty big variety, especially when you throw Felton in there. Which of those players do you think might make the biggest difference? Because I know Jennings is obviously proven at Old Dominion. Lane's proven and as a kind of a slot guy at Middle Tennessee. And then you've got Felton. Um, and then it seems like Gosnell's kind of the most consistent guy out of the four. Yeah, it's it's a nice mix of guys. I mean, we've seen Felton out there at practice. We talked to Derek Jones last week. He's just a matchup problem. And it's like the play might not be open, but he can still make a play because his size. Uh, had a little one-on-one with Dante Lovett where Lovett didn't get the jam at the line the other day and Felton got free for an easy touchdown 
uh, in a goal line situation. So I, th- I think he's going to be a real big red zone threat. I think that's where he can help uh, the most. I'm curious to see Lane. Uh, you know, Ali Jennings has put up a lot of numbers. I think Lane in the slot could be something really interesting because he was very productive last year, Middle Tennessee. I think they like him operating in the slot and space like that. That was a, a position last year that Tech never really had. They didn't really have that receiver that just got open all the time and you know, got those easy receptions. You know, it seemed like everything was difficult last year in the passing game and trying to find guys open. I think it would help Grant Wells a lot or whoever's playing quarterback if that slot receiver gets open, makes for a lot of easy throws that uh, you know the quarterback doesn't have to really you know, get it in a, a, a tight window on the sideline or something like that to, to push the ball down the field. There's one other guy I want to talk about is Xavier Turner Bradshaw. We've seen a lot more of that out of him now recently. He's a redshirt freshman. Um, it was uh, was a Malachi Thomas who who is there was a player who called him Mansour Mansour Delane who called him a jackrabbit jackrabbit. Uh, this is about Xavier Turner Bradshaw uh, last week. We saw him uh, repping with the ones when Tech was doing its like two point conversion, some of its red zone stuff the other day. Seems like he's a guy that's come o- come a long way and could potentially factor in. Yeah, he, he's another one. I thought Pry maybe his statements were a little more cautious about him when we brought it up and saying that you know it's, it's inconsistent from practice to practice. And I think you're going to get that from a redshirt freshman, but. He is a, a jitterbug, as we like to say. You know, going back to our uh, Khalil Pimpleton days, we always like to call him a, a jitterbug. But he, you know, he's a shifty guy. He's tough to to get a hand on out there. And uh, you know, I think those guys can succeed when you get them out in space and create opportunities for them. Get the ball in their hands, see what they can do, and, and go make a play. Yeah, we we've all seen you know um, um, the play that. Uh, Jalen Lane had against Miami. Am I remembering the right play where he caught it short and took it the length of the field? I think you can look at slot guys in two ways. Guys who can run those short curls and get the catch, which is helpful if you have a young offensive line that can't hold their blocks very long. But a guy who can also turn the short stuff into an explosive play is, I think, something Tech's been missing. You know, uh, um, so it'll... Tavion Robinson, I think, had some of that ability, but he didn't have elite speed. He could get behind a defense, but in my opinion, he would get caught. It'd be nice to have a guy that can take that short one and, and add another 40 or 50 yards to it. And from the way you guys talk, it sounds like Lane is a possibility for that. And Bradshaw, if he continues to develop, I agree with what you said about the inconsistency in him being young. Um, I think uh, – I think he's made a lot of progress in a year, you know, but he needs to continue making progress in the in the discipline in his game because if it if it is a thing where Lane is the number one slot receiver and maybe Bradshaw's number two, Bradshaw really needs to be ready to step up in a year or two when Lane's gone. One of the last things before we get to a, a little fun game I have for you, Will. <laughs> um, I want to go over the number one offensive line. It's kind of what we've seen all fall camp. Xavier Chaplin at left tackle, Braylon Moore at left guard, Caden Moore at center, Bob Schick at right guard, Parker Clements at right tackle. Brent Pry announced that that's going to be the number one offensive line for Old Dominion next week. Andy Xavier Chapman, we're actually going to speak with him later this afternoon. We're, we're scheduled to speak with him. He's a guy that we asked Pry about yesterday, and Pry gets like Pry's just excited about him. He seems like he's very raw. Didn't play a whole lot last year. But he seems like a guy with a lot of potential, and he's going to be relied on right away as a as a retro freshman. He's huge. 
And we saw him walking through the hallway the other day. I'm like, I'm like, that's got to be Chaplin. There's nobody else that's that <laughs> yeah. big in this program. You're right. I've, ne- I've never spoken to him. Uh, you know, f- true freshman last year. We can't speak to them. And I don't think we've had him in the spring and I didn't get him at media day. So this will be our first opportunity to talk to him. They are putting a lot on his plate as a redshirt freshman coming in. I think he's played 27 snaps all against Liberty at the end of the year. Uh, you know, they, they had the safety uh, on Wells where they got to him and came off that side. I don't know if that was necessarily Chaplin's responsibility on that play or if there was somebody else beside him, but I, I think he, he had a hand in that whole thing. So I think there's going to be some rawness there. I think he's he's got plenty to learn at the position, but they don't have a ton of options <laughs> at tackle. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty slight crew there right now, and, and they got to roll with the guys they have. And, I you know, I think they like – Chaplin, I think they like Braylon Moore on that left side. They're both redshirt freshmen who are starting, and that's got to be concerning uh, just from an experience standpoint. And uh, I don't know about strength. I think they'll be a more powerful group, and Pry likes the 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 uh, you know aggression that they have uh, this year, maybe a little bit compared to last year. But I think that still gives you a little bit reason for pause. Just the entire left side being redshirt freshmen. Who who was the one guy you talked to at media day, David? Where you said that was the one guy where you found yourself looking up? Oh. It was- Daquan, uh, yeah, it was Daquan Felt. Daquan Felt, yeah, um, yeah, because so, he's tall. <laughs> so, so Chaplin's what, nineteen years old, going to be talking to the media. Hopefully, that'll go well for yeah, him. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, one of the other guys said they talked to him, and and they, and he was good. Um, Virginia Tech returns one guy who is actually going to be playing at his position this year. Obviously, Caden Moore started the last year for the Hokies and has been a starter for a couple of years, but he's moving over to center. Parker Clements is back, uh, and I know. I know Chris found it really interesting that heading into the last season, he was a little bit banged up, a little bit injured. He really kind of started to take off and hit his form at the end of the year. Um, seems like this could be a, a pretty, if Clements can get back to his old form, um, and he's the most experienced guy on that offensive line. He's been a starter for a couple of years. seems like he could kind of lead that offensive line forward. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that injury last year, you know, I think he said it himself. He couldn't lift for like, 16 16 or 20 weeks or something like that. It's like he just didn't have the same kind of strength going into the season. I think that helped explain why later in the year he started to look a bit more like himself. Uh, You know, Clements, more the more brothers, Chaplin, Pry, you know, praised all of them yesterday. And then the the fifth guy you asked about, Bob Schick, after that, he was a little bit more hesitant about that. He said, good thing. He's made a lot of progress, but I think that right guard spot is still just not where they want it. And, you know, Schick is going to get the first opportunity there. You know, I think Brody Meadows, I think Clayton Frady could still be possibilities there. Uh, You know, I think they have four guys they feel pretty solid about, but they're still searching for that fifth spot to to see if if Schick can be that guy or somebody else. And if you're searching for five, that means you probably don't feel comfortable about six, seven, eight at this point either. So it's just, it's a really thin group. It doesn't have a ton of experience. And, you know, last year they didn't really have – any injuries on the offensive line. I don't know how many seasons you're going to get where that doesn't, where that happens. I mean, it's just a, you get knocked around, you get somebody falls on your leg from the wrong side. It's just inevitable that you're going to have an injury there and and you got to have more guys ready to step up. And I think that's really going to be where this, this offensive line is one spot where it'll be challenged this fall. Yeah. I want to, I want to mention Parker Clements real quick. His PFF grade in 2021 was a, his offensive PFF grade was a 76.8. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah, that's good. His PFF grade last year was 50.1. It 
and he didn't grade above a 60 until the Georgia Tech game, which was the third to last game of the year. And then it wasn't until the Liberty game where he graded above a 70, the very last game of the year. So he he clearly got better as the season went on. I'm excited to see what he can do and if he can get back to that old form. What were you going to say? Oh, I just it, I hearken back to an earlier podcast where we found out that he'd missed that much time in the weight room. And uh, I remember saying the struggle is real. Uh, I missed three, three months in the weight room and lost all of the strength I'd built up over the course of like a year and a half. So – just again, you know, pointing out to fans that that is a big deal. Um, question I wanted to ask you guys, uh, I've, I've heard y'all talk about Brody Meadows being that guy that they can try some at tackle and try some at guard. What are you hearing about Frady? What's what's the story on him? We, so who, somebody asked probably about Frady Damian yesterday. About yeah, Damien. He got here times. this summer. He had to finish up his degree at Gardner-Webb. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get those transfers, they get here right away. At the spring, uh, I think it, he wasn't here till later in the summer. So there's a you know getting used to the offense, conditioning type thing. Uh, I'm actually a little surprised he hasn't been more in this competition, and maybe that's something we can ask Crook about uh, later today. But you know he he was a veteran guy. He was brought in, I thought, for the express purpose of competing <laughs> for a starting job. So it's kind of interesting to me that you know Schick has risen up to take that spot. Uh, you know, they moved Meadows over to the right guard, and Frady's been playing some left guard along with Johnny Dixon behind Braylon Moore. So I mean, they, they're, they're mixing guys around trying to find the right match, but uh, I still think you got to go into the season with like seven or eight that you can trust or at least rotate in that you can find the right combination. Because I, I don't know if they're going to put out a starting five, and that's going to be the five all season. I think it, that'll change at some point. Yeah, and I think one of the other things is in that two deep, there's a lot of youth back there. I mean, we're looking at Leif Gannon potentially as the left tackle. If something were to happen to Xavier Chapwood, he's a true freshman. Wow. <laughs> so there, there's a there's a whole bunch uh, there's a whole bunch of youth there. All right, game time for you, Will. We're gonna play. Can Will name Virginia Tech starting defense this year? Y- y'all are about to find out why I'm no longer we're on the podcast. N- we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the defense because we kind of know the depth chart is pretty much set. There's a there's a good core, I think, a good eleven starters. I think that we have a grasp of defensively. So I want to go down the line defensively. We will start at defensive end. Who do you feel like Virginia Tech's two defensive ends are going to be this season? You, not who do I feel, but what do I recall? <laughs> um, well, APR is going to be one of them. Is the other starter going to be Burgos? Antoine Powell-Ryland. I would lean Cole Nelson. I think it would be Cole Nelson. Nelson. Okay. Just based on experience. The comments yeah. yesterday Pry had about it were, I think, Burgos, where it's like, again, it's youth. It's inconsistency. Yeah. Sometimes it shows up and he makes these exceptional plays, but – the play-to-play consistency isn't quite the same as somebody like Nelson, who maybe won't make as, as many eye-popping plays as, as Burgos does. But uh, my experience with coaches is they trust the consistency more than the, the eye-popping, you know, yeah, eye-popping flash-in-the-pan type stuff. I think C.J. McCray is kind of in that consistent boat, too. All right, defensive tackle. You know so, who so the— So, wait a minute. I do want to inject one thing. I, I was not aware Cole Nelson had played close to 400 snaps. Does that sound right? Yes. Quietly played. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's a, that's a lot of snaps. Um, okay. So oh, yeah. Going... I told you that in the office the other day when yes. I was writing my Antoine Powell-Ryland story. Right. You were, t- you were talking about Ryland. the snaps everybody had. And I looked at you and said, Nelson played f- like 397 snaps or something like that. Does that sound right? Yeah. Powell-Ryland, uh, 500. He's automatically the most yeah. veteran guy in that room. And then 
McCray and, and Nelson are both between about 350 and 400. All right, so defensive Even tackle, tackle is, You know uh, who those guys are going to well, be. Well, Narelle Pollard and Josh Fuga, right? Kendricks is uh, backing up one of them. Panay would be the other backup. We, I would presume. And then I think Feldarius Payne will factor in, yeah. Uh, with Panay, possibly ahead of Panay there. Uh, and it then, seems like Fuga has taken over one of those starting. Every time we've been out there, it seems like Kendricks has been with the twos. Yeah, it, where at the end of last year, Pry was saying Kendricks was kind of the guy. And he had, he, he had been playing the best of anybody. And he was coming off an injury the previous season. They said by the end of the year, he was their best tackle. So kind of interesting uh, the way that's shifted in that group. But I, I think you can look at those top three. They're kind of say they're all starters because I think they're all going to play that much. Yeah, yeah I, I think... I anyway, I kind of look at Pollard and, and Kendricks as as the Maddie and Daddy of, of their era. So it's it's great to have a guy like Kendricks. Florida so, boys coming yeah, up here, kind of picked right. up late in the recruiting process. All right, what's linebacker? Next? The Mike is Jaden Keller. Is that right? I presume that's who it's going to be. Yes, yeah. and he's been battling that out with a combination of Alan Tisdale, Jade, mostly Jaden McDonald. Too many Jadens and Jalens. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Jalens, the what's next? The well, we can go the, Will the star. The star is it the star? The other one of the that's uh, Sam linebacker. Sam linebacker. and and so the Mike and the star are your middle linebackers, right? No, no, your Will and your Will your and will. your Mike. So let's talk about the Will then. Okay. Uh, now, now I don't know. <laughs> is, is there uh, a Jalen? He had a hint. He's like six foot six. He had an interception oh, last uh, year. Um, Oh man, I'm blanking, guys. Was it against Syracuse or Georgia, Georgia Tech, Tech, where he had that one where he tipped it up and caught it and returned it for a touchdown? See, isn't this funny? I, I'm I'm blanking. Kelly Lawson. Kelly. Okay, right. Your uh, your star, which is your Sam. I guess it would have been no Bud's whip, probably. kind of like your whip. Um, now I'm he blank. started there last year. See, now I'm panicking because I couldn't remember Kelly Lawson. <laughs> um. He's got Keonta the long Jenkins. dreads. Okay. Yes, Keonta Keonta Jenkins. Jenkins. Yeah. Okay. We'll go to cornerback. Monsoor Delane. And is Canteen going to be the other starter? Canteen will probably be the third guy. Canteen's probably your starting nickel. Okay. Which I think they consider a starting position because yeah. they play oh, so Oh, Dorian frequently. Strong. Dorian Strong. Yeah. yeah. And then at safety. That'll be Jalen Stroman. And a guy who played uh, just about every the wide receiver. No. No. No, veteran. Oh. Uh, also has dreads. I'm Nasir Peoples. There you go. Bingo. Not bad. Yeah. Not not bad. So the only one we really forgot was Kelly Lawson. Yeah. And Kelly, I don't know why Kelly Lawson lives in this blind spot in my brain. (laughs) As much as he has played, I I can't explain that. That was kind of odd. And I think of those linebacker spots, I think Tisdale could be in the mix at either of those. Yeah. Mike, with the way Pry was talking about him other, the other day, I haven't heard him talk about Tisdale like that since he's what been say? here. Just he, he's playing uh, better pad level, seeing things better. Uh, he's saying he's playing his best football since he's been here. When you hear that about a guy who's been here, you know, I think it's time. his fifth year, uh, compared to the young guys that they have in Kelly Lawson and Keller who are still learning the positions, I think you have to consider him an option in that mix. And I don't know if that's going to be a starting option, but I think he's going to play quite a bit. Tisdale is a guy that, Oh yeah. Let me read, let me read the the Tisdale quote for you. This is from Brent Pry last week. Um, 
specifically on Tisdale. He's had a quote, he's had a good four, five, six practices. He's playing fast and confident, and he's slipping blocks instead of tying up. He's just showing a little wiggle and dropping his shoulder and getting by a guy. He's just flashing a lot more often right now. He was a guy that was generally in the right place, but I think he'd often be high and he would get ragdolled a little bit. He's playing lower. He's playing with better leverage. He's getting by people a little bit better. I, I love when Pariah gets into his play. He's playing a little high, gets ragdolled out there. It's like, that's not like something Bud would say back in the day. It's like and I can, see him, I can see him doing that thing yeah. with his hands. Yeah, this, Great yeah. explanation. I love it. Um, uh, I was getting ready to say, um, Tisdale is a guy that I want to sit down with and do an in-depth interview someday, because I, I think that, uh, I think there's a lot there below the surface that we don't know about. We know about the, was it a gambling related suspension last year for yeah. like, for like six games? There's a story there, but I think there's... NBA final. Let's make it clear. It was, he was betting on the NBA finals. Yeah. Yeah. It's that Iowa, it. Iowa state situation <laughs> where betting on their own team and stuff like that. Yeah. They, um, that suspension the NCAA handed down was absurd for Alan Tisdale. Just put that on the record right there. But, but I also think there's some personal responsibilities he's had throughout his life. And, and I just, I think managing school and football has been a challenge for him. And he, but he's a guy that's stuck with it and he's still here. And I want to get into that with him. I want to talk to him sometimes, sit down with him for half an hour or an hour and just kind of go through it with him and, and get the inside story on that. Well, he also has a kid who's like two years old. That's what and I'm that's saying. That's another responsibility yeah. added into this whole thing. And I think when we talk to coaches, you know, Justin Hamilton previously is like, you know, we saw a different Allen when he had that responsibility as yeah. well. He became you know, more mature in that sense and in how he went about his football business, but also his personal life, because you have to, you know, you're thrown into the fire. There's no off button with a kid. It is on at that point. So I think that that changes your life radically. Well, some guys do hit the off button. You know, they don't, well, they don't take their responsibilities. And Chris Coleman and his grocery store stories, he's seen Tisdale at the grocery <laughs> store, probably buying diapers or something like that. You know, I mean, so, so I think there's some stuff going on there and I'd, I'd love to get into it with him. Before we continue, it's a great time to remind you that this show is brought to you by the Hokie Way. The Hokie Way's countdown to kickoff matching donations campaign is underway. This fund drive is critically important to Virginia Tech NIL. The first $250,000 in donations will be matched. Visit thehokieway.org to learn more and to donate. Thank you so much for the Hokie Way and First Bank and Trust Company for their sponsorship of the Tech Sideline Podcast. Now, the Hokie Way has, I think, nine days left. It runs up until uh, kickoff of the ODU game. So we're going to be – I know there's lots of asks right now. Um, they just did Triumph together the last couple of days. Um, and so now now we're going to be pushing the Hokie Way's countdown to kickoff campaign pretty hard for the next uh, nine days until, uh, until the kickoff of that game. So we've been going about 40-ish minutes. Uh, let's spend the last few minutes of this episode discussing what some might consider to be the elephant in the room. On Friday, August 18th, so last Friday, ESPN's Andrea Adelson published a story titled Virginia Tech: Why Virginia Tech Unraveled After Frank Beamer's, Frank Beamer's Tenure. Can the Hokies Recover? In the story which Andrea said she spent 20 months on, dating back to January 2022. She interviewed a number of people involved with the program during the Justin Fuente era. Most of the interviews were off the record and anonymous, though Tech's athletic director, Whit Babcock, granted her an interview, and former players Haushan Gaines and Quincy Patterson made public comments in the piece. There's a lot to unpack, Will, but I want to start with you. What was and is now your overall takeaway from the piece 
and how do you view it? We were told at the 2022 ACC football kickoff that a story was coming from Andrea. And of course, it didn't appear till a year later. Um, reading the article, uh, what went through my mind was, yep, knew that. Uh-huh. Yep, knew about that. Uh-huh. Heard about that. There really wasn't anything in there that um, surprised me. And so we, uh, we caught a little guff from the, the Twitter crowd, just a little. And I don't, I'm not sure if anybody said this on our message board or not, but they basically said, if you guys knew all this, why weren't you writing about it? Um, it's a lot easier for an outside person like Andrea Edelson to write an article like that. She works for ESPN. She's got a job, you know, whether she throws tech under the bus or not. Um, it is a very touchy situation for people like us to write a hit piece. Um, but these things have been talked about on our message boards for years. So this stuff was out there. And that's not to discredit her reporting. She did her homework. But uh, you asked what my first takeaway was. That was it. And the other one was, wow, um, she kind of went after John Boleyn for a good 10, 12, 15 paragraphs. And um, that's the other thing I noticed. Yeah. I, first of all, there's a lot of stuff we have reported on. You know, the uh, financial struggles, yeah. facility upgrades. I mean, I've written about this many times over the course of seven, eight years. So it's that, not that, like, that's it's the not Captain like, Obvious like, stuff. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, you know, you come outside, you put it all into one story, and you see it all in one spot like that. And it, it, I think it's a little more shocking than when it's reported over the course of time. I mean, there's the player discontent thing in 2018 that was covered quite a bit by everybody the facility and and other problems that they had in terms of funding there's some great anecdotes in there that were brand new that i'd never heard the, the weight room weights weigh the same that quote which i, I think uh <laughs> is going to pop up on some t-shirts in the future here uh by smart aleck people which you know i wholeheartedly approve i mean that's that's made for t-shirts like that i thought there was some interesting framing in it that i don't necessarily agree with first of all the headline how virginia tech unraveled after frank beamer the unraveling was already starting before Frank finished. I and mean, those last four years that Frank was here, he was this revered person in the program. The issues were already starting to bubble up there in terms of funding, staffing, uh, you know, trying to get a recruiting staff up off the ground, starting from scratch. They were late with that. Uh, staff salaries, I think, lagged behind. The facilities was another thing that, that doesn't just happen overnight. I mean, this is something that has been... You know, they don't address for a long time. Then all of a sudden you're trying to play catch up. You meant they mentioned the dorms. Oh, there's no air conditioning in the dorms uh, for, for players on visits or something like that. Tech knew that. It just takes a while to build new dorms. And now they have the brand new, whatever they want to call it, the innovation campus or however they're yeah, so, it. So let me jump in here. That there. dorm actually has something like 550 beds in it. And all of the freshman athletes live in that dorm. But that's only... Like a hundred in any given year, like 150 to 100. Well, I think by athletes. rule it has to be under half. I yes. think there's, there's the NCAA rule says you can't have an only but athlete. What bothered dorm. me is I saw it called a football dorm. No, it's not a football dorm. It is a campus dorm, and the athletes are, are like you said, a, a certain portion of it. Make no mistake, the football players were high priority in trying to build that dorm. Oh yeah, dorm. that was the driver. Uh, so they, I think, you know, it's not like Frank being retired and then things just went off the rails. It was already starting to kind of go that way. Uh, I've written before. I, I think that, 
you know, there's this pendulum of blame that people have for where Virginia Tech got. And I think when Justin Fuente got fired uh, or came to the settlement uh, to no longer be the coach here, it kind of swung too far in one direction. Everybody's like, Fuente ruined this program. He crashed this Ferrari. I've used that analogy before. I don't think that was the case. And I think it swung a little too far that way. And I think with this story, it swung a little bit too far the other way because, you know, I mentioned the framing. I, I think there was clearly some sources in this who had an axe to grind with Witt and John Boleyn. Uh, I think that was uh, obvious from the very start where John Boleyn was made out to be this, you know, the big bad in this situation. Like, you know, you have that in like a season of Justified or something like that. It's like, like this is the guy that, that's that's taking down this program. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I know him and he and Fuente clashed on some stuff. I think there was a frosty relationship there. I don't think it was to the point where Boleyn was preventing Fuente from succeeding. I think there was a quote in there that said, you know, Nick Saban couldn't have succeeded with the sandbags they threw on Fuentes. Like that, first of all, I think I know who said that quote based on, mm. <laughs> on, the, on the phrasing. Uh, there's but, some, but. Some, I'm not going to go there, but there's some hyperbole <laughs> there that's just that is overstating the situation. But it's also true that Boleyn didn't go to bat for Fuente. I think, I, what was one of the biggest problems Fuente had here? Alumni, alumni engagement, former players. Who had the best connection to all the former players? So I think Boleyn could have helped more in that regard. But, you know, as even mentioned in the piece, he was, he was no longer the football administrator after 2018. Right. So, okay, Fuente had four years after that and still couldn't figure things out. You know, you know Boleyn but, but wasn't... There, but there are job titles and influence, and are. they can be two different things. I, I think it's true, but I think the article also failed to mention that Boleyn is still... Yeah. The number two in the athletic department. His wife is what, chief of staff. She's the, the chief of staff for, with the basketball Tech team. I thought she was direct, director of operations. It's called no, chief, chief of staff. staff. Okay. Yeah, she's she's Mike. I mean, she's Mike Young's John Boleyn, right. so to speak. He's, and and, and all I've heard is good stuff about her Stephanie, in that yes. role. And his daughter Jalen works on the football recruiting staff, and from all uh, reports, is doing a very good job there. So, like his influence within the athletic program is probably greater than it's ever been. He had a hand in pry getting the job here he was one one of the first ones who said hey you know brent pry is an, is an option here and kind of put that on the radar so uh to, to to frame him as like everything that went wrong in the fuente time and then not even mention that he has a hand in the current uh staff and how they're doing i i thought that was an interesting omission. framing omission yeah. uh so I, I just i don't necessarily buy the idea that like oh fuente had no chance to succeed which is sort of some of the point that i got from that article because there's still you know, head coach has all, not all the influence in the program, but major, major influence in the direction of the program, regardless of the other stuff going on. And there were challenges here. There were greater challenges than I think Fuente or anybody would have imagined coming into this job. But you have to set a vision for the program. You have to make good hires. You have to uh, foster a good environment that players want to play in. You have to have player retention and development. And they struggled in all those regards. And, I, you know, I could Boleyn? And the athletic administration have helped more? Yes, I think we've said that many times, but I think a lot more of that is on the head coach and his responsibilities there. So there's that saying that success has many fathers. Well, this this is a failure that had many fathers. This was and, a group project. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> for a, sure. That's the best way to a phrase it. A group project that got a big old F. I, I remember, and, and I don't, sorry, I don't remember what year this was, but uh, it was 
One of those years where Clemson and Alabama were playing each other, probably for the national championship. I think it was the first one when Clemson lost. They do it three times or something like that. Do you, do you remember like, the first one when when Clemson lost it? Do you remember what year that was? I can't. I, they all. Uh, I'll pull it up. Yeah, me. continue. I just remember that. Uh, Be twenty fifteen, maybe fourteen, fifteen, something like that. Somebody ran an article at that point in time about the support staffs that were present at Alabama and Clemson, and. Even though Nick Saban had been doing that for years since like two thousand nine or twenty seventeen, okay. Th- okay, I'm, I'm oh sorry, it would have been twenty. Yeah, I think it would have been twenty seventeen. I think it's earlier than that. Uh oh, sorry, twenty fifteen sixteen. Okay. Alabama won forty five forty. Right. So yeah, but I just remember looking up the support staff. the The article focused on Clemson support staff, and at that point in time, like one of the people they had on their staff was Brad Scott, the former head coach at South Carolina, and they were paying Brad Scott two hundred twenty k a year, and they had a whole army of analysts and support staff. You could go see it on their their football staff page, and it would be this big. I remember it was like thirty people. You go look at Virginia Tech's football support staff, and it was a lot fewer people. And I remember reading that and thinking, oh, crap, something's going on around college football that Virginia Tech is not doing. So I, as some some guy who just follows the program, knew about these trends in college football. And then there's there's a bunch of people that were asleep at the wheel. And, and I, I think Witt did not push for larger staffs. I think Fuente, coming from his background at Memphis, Probably and remember, Frente was at TCU before that, which was a very Virginia Tech-like program, not super staffed or anything like that. I think there were a number of people who were in charge of the situation, and I think you can you can lump Belen in here too, who did not see, understand, or grasp the importance of the way college football was moving, and that Virginia Tech needed to do the same thing, or maybe they did realize it and didn't think Virginia Tech had the money. Well, they've worked on that now. They took it to a higher level at university levels and worked on fundraising with the Football Enhancement Fund. And and there's just a lot of people that the bus flew right past them and they didn't catch it. Well, I think that that's easy to do when you have somebody who has succeeded for so long, like Frank did. Uh, you know, when you're winning 10 games a year, like he did for eight straight seasons, why would you change? Yeah. You know, things are working. Why would you change this equation? I remember interviewing Bud in like 2012 or something like that. And they had just done sort of the uh, professional development stuff they do in the summer where they go visit another school like that. And they went, they had gone to Ole Miss. I forget who the defensive coordinator was there, but, but Bud knew him uh, for a while just to do some professional growth type type stuff. And, you know, I wrote about this at the time, Bud came back and he's like, they've got an assistant for every coach there. They have somebody like a recruiting analyst or whatever position they want to call for every single coach. It's like, we need some help in that regard. And that was 2012. So Bud knew it. Uh, so Bud knew it then. They didn't start a recruiting staff, I think, until 2014. Uh, and even it then, a, it, it was two or three guys that they worked it, like dogs. Yeah, it was you know Chuck Hanner, Thomas Gary were the yeah. first two in, in that role. They, John, they, initially John had, came uh, along. they initially had Kavanaugh and Billy Height, yeah. the old school version of that. It's not, not quite the same thing as what yeah. it, it developed into, but then it's, it's adding pieces and adding pieces. And Fuente knew that early in his time here. And he was trying to get that point across to people uh, just, you know, how much they're getting killed out there because the other schools have all these, this army 
of uh, you know analysts and recruiting staff, and you know, UVA has like regional scouts and stuff like that on the road. Like even compared to UVA, UVA staff, Virginia was Tech bigger. was was yeah. was struggling. I think you know that played into that Baylor dalliance. Yep, that's part of the reason that Fuente talked to Baylor about that job is because you know they could have an army of people there. By the way, I I, I still think he made a mistake not taking that job. Fuente will, should have taken that job. I don't know if he was offered that job. Oh, okay. I was say at the time, uh, you know, uh, the former employer that I worked for had a lot of national people, and you know, I was chatting with one of them, and uh, Bruce Feldman said, I don't know if he's the top option for that job. I think I could still break this, and it ended up being Dave Aranda. And I think, I want to say Bruce Feldman did break that story. So uh, th- they might have been vetting a couple of guys. I, I don't know if it was necessarily an, a job offer that came out. But either way, yeah, you know, I think Chris Coleman wrote the article at the time. The title was a shot across the bow. Yeah, that was kind of a way to say, "Hey, Virginia Tech, you need to take this seriously." And I think Witt understood the problem. He's maintained that he understood the problem, but I think that kicked things into action uh, a little bit more and, and maybe you know greased the skids for some th- these things to happen because it was it was tough to get the positions approved, but then to even fill them. I know that in 2019, Fuente wanted to bring Jerry Kill on full time. They were talking about that in the summer. They weren't able to do that until they freed up some salary. And I think, I believe that was when Daniel Bartlestein left for the college football playoff, and that freed up some salary that they could they could work and actually bring him in here full time. So it's just that's the kind of stuff where they could have used a little bit more support administratively and, and kind of to push that whole thing. But uh, I don't think that's the difference between succeeding at the program and you know what the program became. I think even if they had done all those things, I think there were some, you, you know, we, we talked about this, this failure in air quotes, having a lot of fathers. Um, I think if Virginia Tech had done all of those things right, I think it would have magnified Fuente's weaknesses. Um, in my opinion, and, and I know you're, you're much more informed than I am, I think Fuente had a huge problem with, with roster management and player retention. Uh, yes. I think they did a pretty solid job recruiting, all things considered. Um, I th- by the they... end, I think they turned it that last class and the one that they were talking about, like probably got off to a great start and, you know, monster delays in this class. They had a couple guys decommit, uh, Alex Orgy, you know, Ramon Brown decommitted yeah, yeah. pretty high, high, highly, uh, rated guys that were in that class. I think that last class, there was a lot of Virginia influence in there. There's a lot of good guys that weren't maybe the highest ranked guys, but I think turned into pretty good players or well, will turn into good players. So I, th- I think they turned a the corner, but it definitely hit a, a, a nadir yeah. in that 2020 class where they had signed like 15 guys and nobody in state. I mean, th- there was an issue there. Yeah. Well, the well, the issue there was, and I, and I had a conversation with somebody who knows, um, uh, I think that the NCAA changed their rules that you could, st- you could take official visits in the spring slash summer. And Fuente did not react to that right away. Um, sorry, I can't remember exactly which summer it was. I think it was the summer they were recruiting APR. Um, was it 2019? Probably be 2019 because yeah. 2020 is when and, yeah. and, everything stopped. And other staffs around the country reacted quickly with having a lot more summer official visits and getting commitments and things like that. And what was told to me was that that Fuente just didn't gear up for that part of it quickly enough and they got behind this this person was telling me we sat there and watched all of our targets committing to other schools and we weren't even having them on visits um so that was 
I think that led to a lot of the issues with the 2020 class. I think they got caught with their pants down a little bit. And you're right. He corrected it. His last class or two on his way out the door was pretty darn good. But he also had some good classes early on. Um, a lot of, you know, six, seven, eight, four-star guys per class. So um, now back back to the conversation. Um, I, I, like I said, I think if everything else had been right, um, Fuente still had some some shortcomings that, that would have been magnified. I, would, would he have won eight or nine games instead of six? Maybe, and that would have been enough. I think I agree with you on that front. I, th- I think I look at the timing. The COVID season really took the wind out of the sails. COVID, it came at such yeah. a bad timing. I mean, you look at the way they finished 2019. Hendon Hooker's your guy. You've got a guy at quarterback. You're returning a lot on defense. Uh, I know you're you're transitioning away from Bud, but you've got a Bud protege. You lose that entire offseason to do what you want to do defensively. You get to the preseason. Uh, you know, Caleb Farley, terrible tragedy with his father, by the way. That, that kid's been through so much. Ops out in August. Uh, you know, that's the first-round draft pick that you lose at cornerback. You have the quarterback issues. Uh, with Hendon and, and everything that happened there. I mean, that team was set up for success that year, and it just never got there. And all of a sudden, the quarterback situation screwed up. Hendon Hooker leaves. Uh, Braxton Bur- Burmeister is not the quarterback you need after that. And then you're, you're going into almost a dead man walking season in 2022 or 2021. Totally sorry, right. I'm mixing my years up here. Uh, and even then, you're so close. I mean, you lose when they have three games that were like 98th percentile win, like win percentage that uh, West Virginia, if they can score from the five yard line, Notre Dame, uh, Syracuse, if they don't blow, you know, two score leads in the final five minutes. I mean, he's that close to going nine and three and you don't get rid of him at that point. It's such a fine line on some of this stuff that I think we talk in absolutes and go, Oh my gosh, he was a total failure. And this program completely fell off. It's like, it was so close to going the other way and being successful and and him still being here. So The, uh, the, the, the margin between winning and losing is so slim. And Fuente sat in that chair that you're sitting in, David, and said, you know, I, I don't want to blame anything on COVID, but reflecting on the whole COVID era, if you look, if you think of the individuals you know, and you think of the organizations that you know, be it a business or a sports program, COVID, if, if there were weaknesses or sketchiness in a, in a person or a company, COVID damaged them badly. And there were other people and organizations that made it through okay. You know, I mean, I think Tech Sideline made it through okay. Uh, maybe if you've got three kids, two of your kids got through COVID okay, and maybe it really bothered your third kid. And it was just one of those situations where um, the, 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 the soup, the murky soup of the Virginia Tech football program, it just got damaged by COVID more than some other programs. There's one question I want to touch on before we close. I think people, some people read that and – maybe people who were not necessarily in the know were surprised to see all of that stuff that Babcock sort of let happen, uh, so to speak, from the weight stuff that you were joking about, and weights weigh the same, to the behind-the-scenes stuff between longtime associate athletic director John Boleyn and Fuente and just everything that went on behind there. Do you feel... How do you feel like it portrayed Babcock and considering he's still Virginia Tech's athletic director, 
Do you feel like it's a fair assessment? I don't think it reflected well. <laughs> you don't have a story like that that's like, oh, what went wrong over this uh, you know, 10-year period or however long it was where you were the primary athletic director? I mean, if you're at the top of the athletic department and your signature program is flailing like Virginia Tech football has, that's a, you know, that's a black mark on your resume there. Now, you look at every other part of his resume, it's going pretty well in almost every other sport at Virginia Tech. So, you know, I have a sense that he knows what he's doing. He's just not been able to get his hands around this football thing and get this football thing going the right direction, which, as we know, is the most important aspect of his job is to get the football program right because that pays the bills for everything else and makes life easier in every other regard. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a part of his resume that's still a hole right now that they've got to figure out. And we'll see. If Brent Pry is the answer, uh, you know, three and eight in the first season is not encouraging, but there were some some challenges roster wise that they had to get past there. I, I think they're moving in the right direction. But as always with these coaching hires, you can just never tell. I think uh, concerning Witt, um, he's almost elite at hiring coaches. Um, he's he's very good at hiring coaches. Um, I, I think some of the organizational stuff, uh, he's not as strong. And it's, you know, Jim Weaver was in some respects the other way around. Uh, you know, Weaver was a facilities guy. Wit, the day that he started, said he was about the student athlete experience. Um, he didn't tell us he was really good at hiring coaches. Turns out he is. Uh, Weaver ran a, a, a tight organization. Um, I've talked to people that work for him, and they loved working for him. You always knew where you stood with him. He let you know, he was organized. Uh, financially, they ran in the black every year, sometimes egregiously so. They'd make 6 to $8 million, and in air quotes, in profit. Um, so he, he ran a very tight department organizationally and structurally. And I, I, just, I just get the impression that that's not Witt's strength. But he does have other strengths. You know, he is really good at hiring coaches. I think Jim wanted to take a shot with the cheapest person he could get and see if it worked out a lot of the times. He also emphasized a big difference between these guys is Weaver lived and died with football. He put everything into football. And, you know, everybody else kind of got the short end of the stick. Now, it's not like they were $100 million athletic department back then. And, but I, th- and I think that Witt tries to run an overall athletic department more so than Jim Weaver did. So just some kind of thoughts on the differences between those two guys. You say good at hiring, and yet the football resume is not. And you even go back to his time the, in Cincinnati. The other sports. Yeah, I hired Tommy Tuberville, Cincinnati. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, maybe maybe solely responsible for Tommy Tuberville being in the U.S. Senate <laughs> but the right Fuente now. Hire a whole was, other discussion that uh, I don't want to get into. But the to, Fuente hire was a good hire. It was a... He outflanked a lot of people to get an in-demand hire yeah. at the time. Uh, it's a crapshoot with coaches. Most of them don't work out. Well, particularly, I mean, that, That's the history of coaches. Most of them don't work out. Well, uh, you have to do it in secrecy, too. You can't right. date for a long time. you got to like kind of— It's see, in secrecy, see, and it's quick. And, but you look at that. He outflanked a lot of other people to get an in-demand coach, Justin Fuente at the time, who man, and managed to keep Bud Foster. Everybody said it was a coup at the time. And after they succeeded early on, that that's the narrative that was there and it didn't work out. It was just not in the long run, not a good hire for Virginia tech, but that's it. It's tough to ding him when he did the thing that everybody said he should have done at the time. And yet it didn't work out. Yeah. But it is interesting because you look at a lot of his other hires and no, two of his softball, two of his first. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you look at, yeah. And even Kenny Brooks, women's basketball and, and 
Buzz Williams was a good hire. Mike Young has been a good hire. Um, I believe he elevated Tony Roby. I mean, they're, he's done a lot of other good stuff. It, it's just that one football note that's missing. Um, I want to talk about, of course, uh, what's coming up on TexHeinline.com. Uh, today is Thursday. We've got a busy couple of days. Obviously, Virginia Tech football season starts next Saturday, which is yeah, crazy to think that. about. Um, we've got football interviews and stuff later this afternoon. Uh, there are a couple different stories coming out on Tech Sideline. We'll have off. We're talking to Ron Crook and Xavier Chaplin. Supposed to be later this afternoon. So Andy's going to have an offensive line story off of that. Um, Virginia Tech women's soccer opens its home campaign tonight. I'm going to be at that game. I've also got some interviews with Mike Young and Kenny Brooks and some men's and women's basketball players today. So that's exciting. Got some good stuff. Man, you're a busy guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And hosting this is just part of my fill-in duties, I guess. Um, Andy's writing a mailbag. You're writing mailbag tomorrow? Stepping into that uh, sweet Friday mailbag slot that, nice. that Chris has left open this sweet. week. Yeah, we, I mean, we got to run that. We, it's, it's our weekly thing we got to do for First Bank and Trust yeah, Company. Well, that's, yeah, I, so. I, think, I think Andy will enjoy that. Hopefully, if you have any mailbag questions for Andy, please, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's via email or whether it's on the message board, send Andy good questions no, for mailbag. No realignment questions this week, please. Yeah. Watch, I'll say that, then the ACC will vote to expand like <laughs> tonight <laughs> at 9 p.m. or something like that. Um, yeah. And then are you still planning on running depth chart projections over the weekend? Uh, in some form or another. I don't know if I'll split it up, but uh, I want to do that. I always like doing that before they officially put it out. Although Pry has taken a lot of mystery out of out some of, of these things. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it at length on this thing, but uh, it's still fun the exercise to do before they actually put it out. Sounds good. Well, we've got a lot of great content coming on TexOnline.com. So a thing I've been doing on is been doing is trying to wrangle the, uh, the interns now that they're all back. Um, <laughs> And we are going to, first of all, Gio's not in witness protection. He will be hosting the podcast here soon, if, if not starting next week. Gio's actually calling games for the Salem Red Sox. And so, like, if, if you talk about the St. Cloud Rocks, where so many SMA students have gone and called their games, they get to a certain point in early August and they're done. Gio's still calling games for the Salem Red Sox. And that's Red the difference Sox. between summer league baseball and minor league baseball. Uh, yeah, correct. Um, so he'll be back. Um, we've got all of our interns figured out and what they're going to be doing. And so, you know, for those of you that listen to our podcast and stuff like that, we're, we're going to, and remember I said this, this is the main podcast and we're going to continue to run that on the main podcast feed. The, uh, TSL today that we were doing, we're going to try reworking that into a shorter, more frequent newsy format, and that will become its own podcast feed. And the Triumph Spotlights that we've been doing with the athletes, that's going to be broken out into its own podcast feed. Um, so these are some of the things I've been working on with them. And, then, and we're actually we're actually going to have an intern run a TikTok channel for us. And that was, I always said I would never do that. Now I have the Tech Sideline TikTok username reserved so nobody else can go in there and get so it. So they're going to be like following Andy and I around at games. <laughs> so um, it's funny. I was meeting with the interns the other day and I said, well, what do you, what do you think about the, uh, we we've tapped we tapped uh, Morgan Gay to run it. Morgan is a junior this year, and um, she was looking for something to do, and she's got experience at that sort of stuff. And the other interns think she'll be great at it, but they said, "Well, they asked me like, well, what do you want her to do?" And I said, "Whatever she wants to do." So I'm not sure what's we'll going to wind up on there. It might she might meander into Center Street on game day and get some interesting stuff there. So um, 
If you're on TikTok, go follow Tech Sideline because it's actually going to come to life. It's never had a single post there, but behind, maybe you'll get some behind the scenes stuff. Huh? That is yeah. completely intern run. I'm not even sure I'm going to go over and look at it. Well, so that's coming up. I think that's a good way to wrap up episode 306 of the Tech Sideline podcast. Thank you to all who tuned in. Thank you to everyone on set today. Will Stewart, Tech Sideline's founder and general manager, Andy Bitter, Tech Sideline senior staff writer. Jack Brizendine, big thank you to him. He produced this episode. Uh, I'm your host, David Cunningham, TSL's managing editor, signing off for episode 306 of the Tech Sideline podcast. We'll talk to you next week.